Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today on Something You Should Know, jet lag can ruin a trip. I'll tell you how to minimize the effects. Then, how our food environment makes it so hard to eat healthy and stay thin. Today, if you were to go into McDonald's and get the kids' meal, you would get that little hamburger. And the small fry is the same size as a large McDonald's fry from 1972. And you'd get a 12-ounce soda. Well, in 1955, McDonald's was serving 6- and 7-ounce Cokes. Then, why are they called piggy banks? What do pigs have to do with it? And as humans, we're all connected to each other, but in ways you likely never realized. Our brains are much more porous than we intuitively think. So every word that we hear from others, every word that we read in a book, is changing the neural networks in our brains. So we're continually changing each other through our communication. We're, we're co-creating our identities. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. One of the many things that I am grateful for in my life is that I don't really ever get jet lag very much. Unless I'm crossing many, many time zones, I don't suffer the way I see other people suffer from jet lag. What is jet lag? Well, simply put, it's that feeling of feeling tired and sluggish after traveling over at least two time zones. Jet lag is generally worse when you lose time traveling west to east. If you're an older adult, jet lag may hit you harder and recovery can take longer. 
Jet lag happens because rapid travel throws off your biological clock that helps control when we wake up and when we fall asleep. A good rule of thumb is to plan on one day for every time zone you've crossed to adjust. But there are some effective strategies that can help minimize the effects. First of all, simulate your new schedule before you leave. Start shifting your bedtime towards what it will be at your destination. If you can, move it a half hour earlier each night for several nights before you go. Next, adapt as quickly as possible. If you can't start shifting your schedule before you leave, do it as soon as you get on the airplane. In other words, change your watch to the time at your destination and try to get into that rhythm. Stay hydrated. Drinking ample amounts of water does seem to help. And once you get to your destination, take a hot bath or shower before bed. It will relax you and help you sleep, which is exactly what you need to get in sync with where you are. And that is something you should know. Eating in the 21st century, at least in the U.S., has become a real challenge. It's hard for many people to eat healthy because there are so many temptations to eat food that's not very healthy. To the point where we now have a real health problem. People are much heavier on average than just a few generations ago. And seemingly, many very smart people are making some very poor choices when it comes to the food they eat. Jack Bobo is a food psychology expert with over 20 years advising four U.S. Secretaries of State on food and agriculture. He's really studied this problem. He has a book out called Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. Hi, Jack. Welcome. I am delighted to be here. It's interesting when you think we have conquered so many diseases and illnesses and made such huge advances in medicine, and yet we have this big and growing health problem that seems really hard to stop. Yeah, you're absolutely right. 42% of all Americans are obese, and 75% are overweight or obese. And that's dramatically higher than the number uh, back in 1960 or 1970. And so, as you said, what's really striking is that we have never known more about health and nutrition in the history of the planet, and we've never been more obese. We've never been able to go into a grocery store and have access to more healthy food options, and we've never been more obese. And so it's not that Americans have uh, less uh, willpower today than they had in the past. You know, nothing's really changed there, and our genetics have not changed over time. What's really changed is our food environment, the foodscape that surrounds us. And that's what's influencing the choices that we make every day. And then you couple that with our natural innate psychology, how our minds work, and they team up to deliver unhealthy outcomes just as in back in the 1960s, our food environment was helping to make us healthy. So uh, put that into a real-life example of how this works. Yeah, so um, let's think about it. You know, supersized portions are something we, you know, we're all familiar with today. But the idea of supersizing all goes back to the mad genius of one man, David Wallerstein, back in the 1960s. And he was trying to sell more popcorn in a movie theater chain, and it finally dawned on him, what if the reason people won't go back for a second bag is that they're embarrassed, that they might look gluttonous if they go back? And so he introduced the jumbo-sized popcorn. And of course, the rest is history. And what he really was tapping into was this idea of value. 
that if I pay a nickel more or a quarter more and I get 25%, that's good value. And it is really hard for us to turn down a deal. And so it doesn't matter if you're at McDonald's, the Cheesecake Factory, all of these places have learned that by just offering a little bit bigger portion for a few cents more, it's very difficult for people to, uh, to turn that down and say, you know what, I'll just take the small, even though it would be better value to, to get the large. But that little bit of more has turned into a lot of more. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it's not just a little bit of more. I mean, most of us don't even understand what an adult serving of food looks like. So imagine this today, you know, we, if you were to go into McDonald's and get the kids' meal, you'd get that little hamburger, and the small fry is the same size as a large McDonald's fry from 1972, and you'd get a 12-ounce soda. Well, in 1955, McDonald's was serving 6- and 7-ounce Cokes. And so, you know, that, and that's what an adult portion looked like, smaller than a small fry, a hamburger, and a 6-ounce soda, and that served an adult. If you go back to the 1960s, the average dinner plate was seven to nine inches. Well, that's the size of a salad plate today. Most people have a 10, 11, or 12-inch plate in their home. And if you go out to restaurants, they're often 13 inches or larger. So if we're eating 20, 30, 40, 50% more food every time we sit down to eat, how can we be surprised that we're gaining weight? And yet some people don't. Some people live amongst, you know, and you said that it's, it's about 75% of the population is overweight in one form or another, but that other 25% doesn't. So what's the difference? Well, it's really just a matter of time. Because if we went back to 1970, only about 10% of Americans were obese. It's 42% now. It'll be 50% by 2050 if we don't change things. So we, we have this feeling that people who are not overweight or obese are somehow special, and the environment is becoming more and more challenging for everybody. You know, 10 years ago, it was only 30% of people, and we would have said, well, what's special about the other 40%? Now we're saying, what's special about the other 25%? Uh, it's that the food environment is coming to get us all if we don't find a way of changing that food environment. So we shouldn't focus on what's special about individuals. We should focus on what's special about the food environment that is leading some people to have a healthier outcome. Because that's something that we can then replicate. You know, we can't replicate people's income or, you know, access to gyms and all of those things. Um, but there are things we can do about our environment. Like? Well, so we can work at the individual level, we can work at the community level, and we can work at the societal level. So there are different ways that we can do this. Um, just in our homes, of course, we can look for those smaller plates. You know, go to a yard sale or a state sale and, and you know, buy up those old plates from the 1960s and, and use them every day. And, you know, that will get you used to that smaller plate. Uh, one of the things that I've done, I've gone into restaurants, and after they serve the food, I have pulled a nine-inch plate out of my wife's purse, and I've replated my food before I take my first bite. And that's what's important, because if I get to the end of the meal and the, my plate is clean, my brain thinks, okay, I should be full now. But if I get to the end of the plate and, or the meal and I've still got half the food sitting there, our minds are going to work against us. So we can begin to think about, well, 
if I'm not going to finish my meal, let's just set some of it aside. Or one of the things that my family, we do, is that there are four of us, my wife and two kids, when we go out to dinner, we just order three meals. And if we get to the end of the meal and we're still hungry, well, now we've got room for dessert and we don't have to feel bad about it. Not once in the years that we've been doing this have we thought, wow, I wish we had an extra meal (laughs) between the four of us. You know, if you have a tendency to eat a lot of snacks, well, if you don't buy snacks, you won't eat them. Um, If you do buy the snacks, instead of putting them, leaving them on the countertop, put them away in the cupboard where you don't see them and you're not tempted. So they're just little nudges that we can do to our everyday experience that make it slightly less likely that we're going to consume it. And that's what all it really takes is little nudges every single day. And over time, you can begin to lose that one or two or three pounds every year just as you gained it, not by massive weight loss, but just without even really noticing it and without suffering. You know, we worry too much about our food. We count too many calories. We do all sorts of things that actually lead us to focus more on food And those things actually make it harder to lose weight. Someone said something to me, and and it seems so true, and it tails into what you just said, that food now is, rather than being something that you buy to enjoy, you buy it in in a defensive mode. Oh, that's fat-free, that's sugar-free, that's gluten-free. It's what food doesn't have in it that makes us buy it. it. It seems completely backwards. And a lot of this grew out of the dietary guidelines back in the late 1970s and the early 80s when they decided to encourage Americans to eat less fat in their diets. And when they did that, the grocery stores and the food manufacturers did really what one would have hoped. They started offering low-fat mayonnaise and dressings and all of these things. And that should have been a good thing. The problem is that that psychology came along and it gave a health halo to that product. And we began to think, well, if one cookie is good, eating the whole bag must be great. (laughs) And so we ended up, uh, because of things like the halo effect, over-consuming products that had that health halo rather than maintaining our current consumption pattern and actually benefiting from that. The other way that that's a challenge, though, is that as soon as you put something like low-fat or low-calorie on a product, consumers just enjoy it less. They don't expect it to be as filling. So if you were to buy a Weight Watchers meal and eat it versus you know a, a frozen meal that wasn't Weight Watchers, and it was exactly the same product, just one had the label and one doesn't, people that eat the Weight Watchers would report being less full even though they ate exactly the same number of calories as the other product. So if we think we're eating something healthy, we actually enjoy it less and we don't get as much benefit from it because it leads us to eat more. And so there's that kind of pressure against us all the time that's sort of working against all of our good habits, like you were saying. We are talking about how and why eating has become so problematic for so many people. My guest is Jack Bobo. He's author of a book called Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, Jack, it seems, listening to you talk, that if somebody wants to lose weight, that it's going to take a very deliberate commitment to doing that, that you can't kind of, sort of, just get the small french fries this time kind of thing. It has to be more of a deliberate attack uh, on your food environment as well as your eating habits and the way you approach food. But that sounds like a diet, and we hear a lot of bad things about diets. You know, every diet in the world works if people stick to it. The problem is that no diet actually works because there's no diet that people consistently stick to. You know, one diet might work for one person for a certain period of time. And that's why it's, it's useful to understand the information at the personal and household level. But we really need to go beyond that. And communities, and that could be local governments, federal governments, others, and the food industry itself need to buy into this idea that we can begin to reshape the food environment uh, so that people don't have to work that hard. Because we, if, if we said that that was the solution, then we would never actually achieve the solution because people have been saying what you just said for 50 years. But if we could work with the grocery stores, if we could work with the restaurants, I'll just give you an example. In the UK, uh, one of the grocery store groups decided to redesign the, the layout of the grocery store to encourage people to eat more fruits and vegetables. And over the course of a year, they increased fruit and vegetable purchases by 16%. And, you know, that's something that the consumers who were coming into the grocery store had no idea. They were just buying more fruits and vegetables because of the positioning and the organization and the layout of the, uh, the store encouraged healthier outcomes. And we can do that in restaurants and cafeterias and other places as well. So we don't have to relay, rely on you know, the mental fortitude of consumers, we can actually help them to deliver those healthy outcomes without all of that effort. Because nobody was stressing about it in the way you just described back in 1960. We were cooking with Crisco and all sorts of things that are crazy today, and yet somehow it wasn't leading to those bad outcomes we have. Yeah, well, that's always fascinated me because, you know, people say, well, you know, the food is different today, but it isn't, it wasn't that different in the 60s. It was different. And, and as you point out, we were cooking with Crisco and all that, but we were somehow eating less and, and somehow we weren't so tempted to just keep eating and eating and eating. Yeah. And so a lot of it, you know, you think about 
a, a lot of ultra-processed foods, it's just easier to consume more of them. It's not that, you know, chips and, you know, a plant-based burger and other things are inherently bad. It's that our, uh, one, the palatability of the products often just encourages us to eat more. And they tend to be very, you know, calorie-dense. So, you know, I can eat a small bag of chips and actually get quite a few calories, but I'm also tempted to just keep eating them. And, you know, in 1960, you know, when we were growing up as kids, the, you know, people didn't uh, snack all day long. You know, they didn't have access to that. You, you came in for your meals and, you know, maybe you had a snack in between, but it probably was something a little bit healthier. And so that's why my focus is mostly on that food environment and, you know, that's something that um, we all need to address rather than sort of the mechanics of any individual product. And so the nature of the products has changed, but how we consume those products has changed even more. I recently decided to lose some weight and do some things to be more healthy. And one of the things that I did was I just, I just made peace with the fact that it's okay to feel hunger, that you don't have to, every time you feel a little bit hungry run and go eat something, which I think, as you would just pointed out, that people snack all day long. As soon as they start to feel hungry, they go eat something. But I've made peace with the fact that feeling hungry doesn't require my attention all the time. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's correct. And we need to find different habits. So, you know, the current habit is if I have a little bit of hunger or, you know, to be honest, when you're bored. I mean, many people are snacking. They think they're hungry, but they're mostly actually just bored. And they think about, well, what do I want to do? And then maybe their stomach growls a little bit and they think, oh, I must be hungry. And it's, it's actually boredom. And if you could create a different cue, which is anytime I'm bored, well, I go do a little bit of exercise or I go for a walk, you can begin to, you know, turn those intentional activities into habits. And it's the habits that keep us going in the right direction when we're not thinking about it. And that's the problem when we tr talk about, you know, trying to use willpower is that it, it's just too exhausting to have willpower constantly. And we see this when we go to the, the grocery store. You know, it's something called um, you know, mental fatigue and decision fatigue. The more tired either intellectually or physically we are, the worst the decisions that we make. And that's just true for everybody. And there's no place that you have to make more decisions than a grocery store. A grocery store today has about 10,000 more products than one in 1980. And so it's just wildly more difficult, more exhausting um, to go through those experiences. And that's why, you know, having a list is having a habit that says, these are the things I'm going to buy. And, you know, you're not distracted by snacks and other things that are coming along. So creating habits, whether it's, you know, working out or, you know, the habit of, you know, when I feel a little bit hungry, this is what I do, uh, are all things that can be very powerful because they can, uh, they're, they're acting even when we're not really aware of it. You know, there has been a tendency, it seems, in recent years to, uh, I guess you would call it blame the food, that, you know, the problem is sugar or the problem is fat, or the problem is portion size. And maybe there's some validity to that, but, but ultimately, too, it's, it's choices that we make. 
Well, and, you know, we hear a lot about today about how food is addictive and, you know, sugar is, you know, should be classified as a addictive drug. And, you know, I, I certainly understand how tempting things like sugar are, but, you know, we should also recognize that, you know, the, the more money you have, the less likely you are to be obese, despite the fact that you can afford even more and more food. And so there's something about having, um, you know, access to better quality food, to having access to gyms and a better food environment that uh, is making those people that are wealthy uh, healthy. And it's not just because they have more willpower and, again, not uh, suggesting that those who aren't doing as good a job as others are somehow failing. It's our food environment that's failing us. It's not we who are failing um, our bodies. But that, but what you just said, that, that, that they have access to higher quality food. Well, everybody in the U.S. today has access to higher quality food. It's just that they also have access to lower quality food, and they're making choices. Well, you know, the, the choices that, you know, you and I make when we grow to the grocery store are different than somebody who's on a fixed food budget. Um, you know, we can go through and, you know, maybe we buy the Parmigiano-Reggiano and we don't bother with the Kraft uh, Parmesan cheese or the generic store brand. And, but somebody who's on a fixed food budget, you know, they may like that better quality product, but they have to do the math of, well, how many ounces, how many servings am I going to get? You know, it's a struggle every day that they go to a grocery store. And so, you know, sometimes there's this feeling, well, you know, I should have the candy bar when I leave because they feel like they deserve a reward. And, you know, maybe they do. And so, you know, the uh, value means something different. When uh, restaurants put the menu labels and the calorie counts, what somebody like you and I might do is we may use that labeling to choose the low calorie option on the menu. But if I'm on a fixed food budget, I may choose the most caloric product on uh, McDonald's menu to get value for my money. Well, what I like about your message is that for people who have trouble keeping weight off, not to look at it as a personal failure, some shortcoming in your character. It's really because of the food environment that you surround yourself with and that you can control. You know, that would be my message is that, you know, don't focus on personal failure, focus on the environment. And if you do better, if we do better, our family will benefit from that because uh, good health is actually contagious. If we can make ourselves healthier, it will benefit everyone around. Well, great, Jack. That's, that's really empowering information. Jack Bobo has been my guest. He is a food psychology expert, and he's author of the book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. And you will find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Jack. All right. Thank you so much. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. 
Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I'm sure you've heard people say things like, we're all part of the human race. We're all connected. We're all part of the same family. We're intertwined. And it all sounds a little woo-woo. Because your experience, or my experience, is that I'm an individual. I'm an independent creature. I think for myself. I'm responsible for my thoughts and actions. And I'm fairly consistent in that I'm the same person today as I was yesterday or a year ago. Well, maybe not. Or at least not as much as we think. Tom Oliver is a professor of ecology at the University of Reading, and he's author of the book The Self-Delusion, The Surprising Science of Our Connection to Each Other and the Natural World. Hi, Tom. Welcome. Hi there. Thanks. Nice to be here. So explain in what way we're all connected. What do you mean by that? If you think about our, our bodies, our bodies are, are overlap with countless others. So we're, we're made of uh, human cells, of course, about 37 trillion of them. But we've also got about 38 trillion bacterial cells in our body. Uh, they're on the surface of our skin. There's about um, 440 species in your elbow joints. Uh, behind your ears, depending how often you wash, about 125 bacterial species. And in our mouths, inside our mouths, about 1,000. Of course, inside our bodies, you know, they're inside our guts. Thousands of species in our guts can affect, actually through this uh, vagus nerve, which wraps itself around the guts, those bacteria, the chemicals they produce, they can affect our, our moods, our, you know, our emotions and the way we think and even how we behave. And so what does that have to do, having all these bacterial cells what does that have to do with being connected to everyone else? We uh, have molecules that make our bodies that, that turn over on a regular basis. You know, each of our cells, like our skin cells, are not with us for very long, maybe just two weeks or, or three or four weeks. And our gut cells aren't with us for very long. There's this continual turnover of material that builds our bodies. And that material comes from molecules that were once part of other organisms, other people that were alive, other plants, dinosaurs, sharks, you name it. Those molecules are uh, in the air that we breathe. They're in the water that we drink, in our food. Just to take an example, if, if you think of how much oxygen in your body, uh, each of us has about 40 to 50 kilograms of oxygen. And when we die and that our bodies decompose, then that enters the air or, or the, you know, the oceans. If you just imagine it going into the air, for example, all the molecules of oxygen that are in your body, in any one cubic meter of air from anywhere in the earth, there'd be about 27 million molecules that were once part of your body. So if you think of when you take a breath, you're actually breathing in that dense fog of molecules that were once part of any other body that has ever lived. I mean, literally, we're breathing in the molecules that were part of these animals and plants, breathing in that zoological legacy, and that builds our bodies. And that's true for everyone. So we really do overlap with each other, anything that's gone before. That's, that's why we're so connected to the natural world. Well, that's pretty interesting. And so I get that, that we're all made up 
biologically and physically of all the things and people and creatures that have come before. But you also say that that our minds are connected in some ways. And that doesn't feel like that to me. It's not my experience that my mind is connected to other people's minds. Actually, our, our, our brains are much more porous than we, than we intuitively think. So every word that we hear from others, every word that we read in a book or on the web page is changing the neural networks in our brains. We have about 170 billion neurons in our brain and the way they're wired up determines our personality, our self-identity and, and how we think and, and what we feel. So we're continually changing each other through our communication. We're, we're co-creating our identities. And there's actually even other ways that we're influencing each other below the conscious radar. So for example, pheromones, these are, are smell chemicals that each of us produces. Uh, without even knowing it, we're, we're shedding cells and, and we create this, this uh, signature in the air around us that you can use you know, DNA sampling to actually uh, pick out a unique signature of, of a person in the air around them. And some of those molecules are smell pheromone molecules. For example, if we're anxious, then that anxiety can, can um, transfer through contagion to, to cause other people to be anxious. So as an example, there's some really nice studies where people put in stressful situations, you know, imagine you're, you know, skydiving. I mean, literally, they put people in a T-shirt and send them skydiving. And the sweat that's produced on those T-shirts, if you place that on a mannequin of the kind that dentists do their, their training on, then those dentists are more likely to make mistakes compared to a control where there's just, you know, some sweat on a t-shirt, but not in a stressful situation. So it's the, the pheromones are actually causing the anxiety to spread from one person to the other. And, and at the frontier of this research, we're, you know, starting to find that actually happiness and well-being, uh, positive emotions can also be spread through those chemicals. So really all the time we're, we're influencing each other, the boundaries of ourselves even our minds are much more porous than we might first think. I've heard about this before, this idea that we affect other people's behavior and they affect ours in a simple sense that, you know, if you hang out with a smoker, you're more likely to smoke. If you hang out with someone who's overweight, your, your possibility of becoming overweight goes up. So what's going on there? Behaviors or, you know, tendencies can spread through social networks to the degree even actually that we can influence people that we haven't even met through, you know, uh, stepping stones of, of our, our kind of social links. So obesity risk, uh, voting preferences, taste in music can all uh, spread through these social networks. Um, even some negative, you know, things like suicide risk as well can spread through these social networks and in influencing people well beyond our immediate contacts. And that's because, you know, the way our brains work, we essentially um, co-create each other's identities, that any behavior is very easily transferred between humans. And actually, our culture is so powerful in the way that it links us together. You know, in, in, we, in the West, we have this, this kind of myth of inventors as lone geniuses working alone. But actually, when you really study it, many of these inventions, you know, the hypodermic needle, for example, the thermometer, the incandescent light bulb, steamboat, these inventions were actually invented in different places, different locations in the world at the same time. And so 
it really is a myth that inventors and creativity is, is a sole endeavor. Actually, it's part of a great linked creative human endeavor. And so, the, you know, the kind of hackneyed saying that we stand on the shoulders of giants is, is absolutely true because we, we build on that culture and we, we share more than we, than we hold uniquely to ourselves. I would assume that, let's just take, you know, taste in music, that, it, that someone might influence my taste in music just because I'm hanging around them and they're playing their music and I'm listening to it and I'm kind of getting used to it. And yeah, I kind of like it. Is it any more than that? We really influencing each other in ways that we don't always consciously register. So, you know, we might talk about a song and um, decide that we both like it. And then maybe I'll go away and listen to that song. But actually below the conscious radar, we're, influencing the way we talk the way we we think even the way we feel and that that happens uh, because our minds are so much more porous than we than we intuitively think and both that's a good thing uh, and a bad thing and in a in a good way it, that connectivity facilitates creativity of humans and our ability to create this civilization has been achieved through this uh, amazing ability to cooperate and share knowledge and build a culture. But on the negative side, it does mean that uh, negative tendencies can spread through these social interactions. So whether that's the risk of obesity, whether it's suicide risk, and actually part of the solution to that from my perspective, is, is, is an understanding and a recognition that we, we are much more connected. You know, when we feel isolated, uh, we then tend to be more anxious and more depressed. Research shows that when people feel more connected to each other, they do tend to be happier and have a greater sense of, of autonomy and also show more pro-social and pro-environmental behaviors too. What about our connection to non-humans, to nature and to pets and other creatures? I don't know how much we know about that, but what do we know about that? So we know quite a lot now that, um, again, challenges this illusion that we're independent entities or that, we're, you know, that humans are exceptional in some kind of way. If you think about our bodies, you know, they're built from materials scavenged from the environment. And the DNA is the, the instructions, uh, the genetic code in our cells directs those materials to be built into a body which looks like us when we look in the mirror. But that DNA is actually shared. It's borrowed from our ancestors and we'll pass it on to ancestors to come. And by ancestors here, I don't just mean humans. I mean, obviously, humans evolved uh, back through the, the web of life right from single-celled organisms like bacteria. So actually, if you think about the genetic code of a bacteria, uh, think, of, uh, think of that information, for example, on a musical score, um, you know, a piano piece. If you were to add more layers onto that piano piece, you know, add a violin and a cello, the music, the musical score, the information on that bit of paper becomes more complex. And that's essentially the human genome is that complex um, genetic code. But still within that, you would be able to look at the score and recognize the piano piece that was the bacteria. And that's the same with our DNA. Uh, we share 33% of our DNA with simple bacteria. So really, you know, if you think about the tree of life, the tips of that tree of life are not distinct. They're not isolated. There's a, a biologist called Lynn Margulie, and she says that evolution is not a linear family tree. 
Instead, it represents change in a single multidimensional being that has grown to cover the entire surface of the earth. And I really love that, that quote because this idea that we are one life uh, is actually true to the science. Well, as I listen to you explain this, uh, of all the ways that we're influenced and how we're connected to other people and how they're changing us and we're changing them, but it doesn't feel like that to me. I, I feel like I am the same person that I was yesterday and last year and, and, and fundamentally that I am who I've always been. And you say that we're changing all the time. So how so? Just to give a concrete example, you know, we think of our education systems um, and there's been this, this history of, of kind of building self-esteem, you know, almost to the degree of, of selling yourself as a personal brand. But if our minds, I mean, our brains literally dynamic, they're changing all the time, this neural network, and that's changing our personality, then we're not the same person we were last year. But equally, we're not the same person we were when we woke up this morning. So this idea of selling yourself as a brand, some kind of static, uh, you know, entity is obviously going to cause this cognitive dissonance that, that kind of makes us anxious to maintain this, this self-image, which is uh, projected and, and, and untrue because we're changing all the time. But when you say I'm not the same person I was when I woke up this morning, but that's not my experience. I feel like the same person. And, and, you know, maybe some of this is semantics. I mean, how much different do you have to be to not be the same person? If you never, you never liked country music before and now you do, you're still the same person. You just like country music. I, I don't think that makes you a different person. The normal pathways in your brain uh, will show some similarity with the patterns that you were yesterday, but there will be differences, new experiences that happen, even as I mentioned, how other organisms in our bodies like bacteria can affect uh, the way we think and can affect the configuration of those neural networks. So there will be subtle differences. Of course, you're not completely different to the person you were when you woke up uh, yesterday, because that would be, if we were uh, completely different, we wouldn't have any personality which has some persistence over time. But there is uh, always these changing uh, networks in our brains, and those are influenced by outside forces to, to a degree much greater than we, than we intuitively think. The reason that we think we persist over time, even through years, is somewhat of an illusion that we have this feeling of a sense of self which is permanent and, uh, and, and lasts over many years. But actually, the, the evolution has... has set our brains, a configuration of our brains, a program, as it were, to, to build this illusion. Because it was, it was healthy, uh, it allowed us to find food, to navigate complex social interactions, to have this sense of self. Well, we all know people change, people grow up, they mature, they, they are changed by events that happen in their life. And, and that's just what happens to people. But I, I don't think we should underestimate the ability of our mind to, to weave narratives and stories. That's how the mind evolved, and that's its great strength. Even to the degree that um, people can behave in a certain way and then rationalize a narrative to explain that behavior afterwards. And I think that, that to me, is what's going on to, to a great extent with our sense of self, that we, we weave together this narrative about a coherent, continuous entity but actually, 
there's a lot more change going on than we might imagine and a lot more hidden influences uh, that are affecting us than we we might intuitively think as interesting as it is to hear this that we're all connected in these unusual ways that i certainly never knew and that we're all breathing in molecules of every living creature that's ever gone before us and i mean it's pretty fascinating stuff but but what do we do with this? What's the what's the big payoff to to all of the research about how we're all connected? So I think the key message really is that for me, many of these problems that we face in the world today, you know, mental health uh, epidemic, planetary crisis in terms of ocean acidification, air pollution, biodiversity loss, they all seem such big daunting problems. And we often think we need to fix them by working on institutions that are well beyond us as an individual. But actually, this research shows that, that you know, what goes on in our minds and how connected we feel to the world, and, and the more we can overcome this illusion that we're isolated entities, actually that has a massive impact on addressing these problems because of the way that sense of connectedness actually leads to changes in behaviour of people. And if we think about those institutions that we want to change, um, you know, the economic institutions, our justice systems, you know, actually these are made up of, of worldviews, both past and present. So really, you know, those big problems that I mentioned might seem so daunting out there, but actually the solution to those problems lies within us right now. And so to me, that's, that's an empowering uh, message from, from some of the science of our connectedness. Well, as I think I've said a couple of times in our discussion here, it it sure doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like I have these connections with the natural world and with other people and that I'm breathing in cells from dead people from ever since Earth began. It's just, it sure doesn't feel that way. So it's really interesting to hear. Tom Oliver has been my guest. He is a professor of ecology at the University of Reading and author of the book, The Self-Delusion, The Surprising Science of Our Connection to Each Other and the Natural World. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Mike. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Just about every kid has a piggy bank. And when you're a kid, that's a good place to save your money. But why is it called a piggy bank? Well, surprisingly, it's not because pigs are associated with greed. The answer actually dates back to the Middle Ages. In the 15th century, metal was expensive and not really used much in households. Instead, dishes and pots were made of clay, and the clay was called pig, P-Y-G-G. If you were lucky enough to save a coin here and there, you'd drop the coin into one of your clay jars, or your pig bank. Fast forward a few hundred years when English potters had requests to make pig banks, they naturally shaped them like pigs. And that's how we got piggy banks. And that is something you should know. We're continuing to close in on 5,000, 5,000 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts you'd like to help push us over that mark, would be really nice. Just go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review, preferably five stars. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.